Velkommen til live fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Mit navn er Lise Bakhansen, og jeg præsenterer denne podcast med highlights fra det Kongelige Biblioteks kulturscene i Den Sorte Diamant. Den danske psykolog og forfatter Svend Brinkmann inviterer i denne podcast den britiske filosof Simon Critchley ind på scenen i Den Sorte Diamant. Med glimt i øjet og store filosofiske penselstrøg maler de to herrer et portræt af samtiden med begreber som sorg, skuffelse og blind optimisme. Derudover diskuterer de også andre store eksistentielle temaer, ikke mindst fodbold og David Bowies musik. God fornøjelse. Lovely music. Yeah. <laughs> Hello everyone and welcome from me, Sven Brinkmann, to this uh, conversation. And welcome to you, Simon. Thank you very much. Very glad that you could come to Denmark and talk about your works, your books. I brought some of them. You were very productive, so I haven't uh, I flew in today, so I couldn't bring all of them <laughs> uh, without having to check in. Uh, some luggage, so I didn't do that, so I, but I brought some of them. And uh, I've really been looking forward to uh, talking with you. It's a bit uh, strange to have a conversation in front of 400 people. Yes. And uh, <laughs> we've been told not to worry about you. Yeah, you're not there. We should just pretend that you're not here. Right. Um, Hello, Copenhagen! <laughs> <laughs> It's quite incredible uh, that people are willing to, to pay just to listen to a conversation. It yeah. sort of makes me a bit nervous um, because we're not going to sing or dance or do magic tricks, but actually there will be some music later. Yeah. But that's a surprise. Right. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> um, <laughs> better than that music we just heard. <laughs> um, let me begin by inviting you to talk a little bit about yourself. About me. So people can, uh, can get to know you. Okay. Uh, I have some notes here, and um, yes. I've read a biographical interview you did with uh, Carl Sederström, who yes. is a Swedish uh, researcher. Mm -hmm. And he made a reference to how you once characterized yourself. And here is the quote. This is Carl Sederström uh, addressing you in an interview. You have jokingly said that you are critical, secular, well-dressed, post-Kantian. And then he asked, would that be your brand? Mm -hmm. You denied it and replied, and these are your words now, I'm not particularly critical or even particularly good at criticism. Mm -hmm. I'm not secular, that's for sure. Mm -hmm. I have a much more tortured relationship to religion and issues of faith. Maybe I'm a post-Kantian but in a pretty strange way. And I'm not liberal in any way at all. Yeah. <laughs> yeah well, so this that, is that, interesting. That's what I said, yeah. Um, yeah. I, I, I would guess, with, without knowing you that well, that you're more comfortable with talking about what you're not, as you do right. in the interview with Carl. Yeah. Could I um, ask you, What to I talk am. a little bit about what you are um, and what you a, a, a man more sinned against than sinning, <laughs> as King Lear said. Um, I am. Um, I don't know. I mean, I, I so I teach philosophy. Yes. 
I don't say I'm a philosopher. I think that's pretentious. Um, but I teach it. Um, I don't feel at home in it. I always feel that philosophy is a little bit over there. Um, and the mainstream philosophical establishment is, is something else. So I, I do feel like a bit of a, a visitor. I think mo like most people, I feel like a fraud. Yeah, I feel mm -hmm. like a fraud, a charlatan, uh, an idiot. At the moment, I feel like a, a nervous charlatan fraud. Idiot, and that's how I feel most of the time. So I feel like you know the door's going to open. Many people have this. Mm. Uh, that you know someone's going to say very quietly, "I'm sorry, Simon. You know we realise what you've been doing, and it's now time to leave." And yeah. I wait for that that moment. I know the uh, feeling. Yeah. So that feeling of being a fraud. I think. I, yeah. I yeah. I feel like a, a fraud. So, and I don't think the. Um, you know, I think the, uh, I don't think very highly of my intellectual abilities. That's not modesty, I just don't, I mean, I'm around people in where I work who are better philosophers than I am, better teachers. I don't think I'm a particularly good, so I teach philosophy, but I don't think I'm a particularly good teacher. I think I can do certain things, but not particularly well. But I think I can write, I can write pr decent prose sometimes, um, you know, I am a psychologist, and yeah. I don't want to turn this into a <laughs> therapeutic uh, conversation, but I wanted to ask you then, what are you good at, Simon? Yeah. What are your strengths? Right. <laughs> I'm very, uh, very empathetic, you know, very open. No, I feel, I mean, my basic, so a book that I rediscovered recently, and it was very important to me when I discovered it, and I'll tell you why I went back to it was a book called The Divided Self by R.D. Lang, mm -hmm. Ronnie Lang. And uh, when I, I was interested in phenomenology when I was a, a student, existentialism was my way into philosophy as it was for many other people. You know, the usual kind of European fiction, Kafka and the rest, and then lots of, lots of Joyce in particular. Mm -hmm. But, um, Existentialism, phenomenology, that seemed to be a way of describing life as it was lived, and that interested me enormously. And, um, and Lang, uh, there were very, few, in, very few people interested in, in that stuff in the UK. So I found some people that were connected to Lang's organization, the Philadelphia Association. I met them uh, here and there. So I began to read Lang. Anyway, after Decades have gone by. I went back to Lang after my mother died. And that's another story. We're going to talk about grief, I think, a little bit later on. And um, Lang talks about the, um, the normal or the sane schizoid self. Mm. Right? He talks about this idea that of the... So you ask who I am. When Lang talks about people, that this sense of, this sense of the unreality of, of the world the experience of dissociation from it and the sense of oneself as being a kind of fraud on the one hand that one has to perpetrate publicly, uh, but inside uh, you feel a, an intense sense of you know, self-hatred and degradation. And the only way you can survive in relationship to that, that world is by, uh, is, by, is by petrifying it, by turning it to stone. Um, so, you know, the... 
so I think I'm a, you know, I'm a sane schizoid self in that sense. And the reason why I went back to um, Lang was partly because you know, I wrote a book on David Bowie, and I'm a big David Bowie fan. And a huge question with, with, with Bowie um, before, when he was alive, but after he died in particular, was you know, who was he? And um, in his hundred favorite books, and then in the exhibition that is now in Brooklyn, but has been all over the world, uh, the Divided Self figures as a, as a book that's on display, which is kind of quite touching. Yeah. And the, um, so he's someone, Bowie, who was whoever he was. What was that kernel of self in, in Bowie? There was a kind of something on the edge of madness there. There's something, there's some, there's some terrible threat of disintegration, some intense relationship to, to the mother in Bowie. And, um, what he does is to construct a series of um, false selves, that we, you know, what Lang calls a false self system. Mm -hmm. That, as it were, you, you become this persona that you act out. And Bowie does that in a very exaggerated way, through figures like Ziggy, through Thin White Duke and all the rest. But I think that's kind of what we, that's kind of how it is, that's what we do. Other people seem to coincide with themselves, mm. and we never do. Right? What it means to so you ask you who I am. So I think selves are fundamentally divided against themselves in in usually um, complicated, uh, slightly agonising ways, and we put on uh, the best fraudulent face we can and try and make the best of it. When I was a, <laughs> when I was a te when I was in psychology, our teachers told us. Um, that uh, Ronald Lang's theory in the divided self is completely misguided mm -hmm. as a theory about uh, psychopathology. But perhaps it's not a misguided theory when it's applied to normal human beings. Yeah, I think, it, I think as a description of schizophrenia, mm. so-called, it's questionable. Mm. As a description of, um, as us, of us, it's, it's quite suggestive. Yeah. And it's it speaks incredibly powerfully, I think. So, that's, um, does that, and, and I suppose the, you know, the, that sense of, uh, I mean, why, do, why on earth does one engage in this activity of, of, of writing? It's because something is obviously profoundly wrong with one's connection to the world, mm. and that one's trying to make sense of it in the best way that one can. So what I can, so I think I can, what I'm good at is I think I can turn a sentence. I think I can, I can produce decent sentences. Yeah, but I think it's I agree. Much, it's, much, it's much better read than it is spoken. I think I feel, yeah, so all of that. Anyway, enough of that shit. <laughs> so Lang, you met yes. uh, his book and books in the UK. Yeah. You studied uh, existentialism and phenomenology in yeah. the UK, and you're now in the US. Yeah. Can you just briefly take us through your trajectory? trajectory. So, I mean, what's important, I mean, I had, um, I mean, in terms of, you know, who I am, the, um, I had a, 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 a very bad accident when I was 18. I won't go into all the details, but it kind of reset me. And I was always very attracted to Sartre's idea of existential psychoanalysis, which is the idea that actually you're not, you're not, uh, you're not constricted by your Oedipal structure, that what happens to you between zero and five. You know, Jean Genet, when he was 14, decides to become a thief. 
mm. and Jenny becomes a thief. So there can be a radical project that you engage with at a certain point that changes you. Anyway, I had this, this bad thing happen to me. Blah, 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 blah. I was playing in bands. I was a, a punk just outside London um, uh, and was you know, playing in bands that failed. So the, the idea <laughs> of the... I mean, the, 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 I mean, you've got to go back to that period that... 1976, 1977 was really year zero. Right? The, um, London or England was the centre of the world for us, um, and everything that had happened before was irrelevant, apart from the Velvet Underground, the MC5, and Iggy and the Stooges, right? <laughs> and then arguably the New York Dolls. So you could throw all that hippie shit away, um, and, and not engage in any hallucinogenic drugs, not chill out with people. It was that there was a kind of tension with punk. And, and then the city became the place where things were happening, this desolate urban zone. And so that was the background. And then things happened, it shifted, and then I began to read um, when I was about 19 and then went to university when I was 22, mm. which, was, which was very good in the sense in which I'd done all the sex, drugs, and rock and roll stuff. There was not much sex, but lots of drugs and rock and roll. Because <laughs> sex was also out of fashion, because sex was something that hippies did <laughs> with, uh, you know, with inappropriate amounts of bodily hair. I mean, punk was very anti-sex back then, which I think is, is an interesting thing to remember. And it was, um, so lots of drugs and rock and roll, got, did all that, went to university, University of Essex, which at the time, there were 42 universities in the UK, and Essex were cons consistently ranked about 41st. <laughs> it was like the worst university in, in, in Britain, and we were very proud of that. You know, we were shit, <laughs> and we liked it. And it wasn't Oxford and Cambridge, and I still wish I had violent fantasies about those universities. I mean, I'd like them destroyed. Uh, not the architecture, because it's very nice, just the institutions and the way in which they've crippled English life for centuries. They're awful, gnawing institutions, and those elites that we had, in the post-war period, had been fairly successfully undermined by forms of meritocracy have reasserted themselves in the last decades, and that's truly nauseating. So not their Essex, and then, um, um, and then just f began to read and work and digested things, and then, and then, th and then, you know, then later on began, began to write. And then academia seemed like an interesting place to be because it was fun. I mean, it's difficult to imagine now, but universities seemed like really fun places to be. Yeah. And, it, you know, you didn't have to work very hard. You got long holidays. They seemed to get paid a lot. <laughs> and they were having a good time. And so I thought, I want to do that. <laughs> and, um, and then... And then began to write in a different way as the years went by. And then, um, but for me, there's, there's a, you know, I, I've always had a, I mean, so I can say all sorts of self-pitying, stupid nonsense about who I am and blah, blah, blah. But the work for me, I mean, there's a, there's a structure to the work that I've done over the years. And I can, I can explain that and defend that. And I, I, I've tried to, I've tried to build up um, a body of work of which I'm, you know, I'm, I'm proud of that, you know. Um, I'm not proud of the person that wrote it, but the actual work, it's, it's okay. Mm. It's, it's good enough. <laughs>
Who were your teachers and influences as a My first philosophy student. teacher was a man called Jay Bernstein, yeah. who I'm still colleagues with at the New School for Social Research, uh, a brilliant teacher. And his first words when he came into it, my first philosophy class were, you know, philosophy is not for stupid people. Are there any stupid people here? Could they please leave? <laughs> it was like that. And he was, very, he was like Groucho Marx. It's funny. He was... I know... I went to do literature, but I thought the literature teachers that I was taught by were frauds. I, could, I thought I could do that on a, on a good day. You know, I, mm. I could see through them. Whereas the philosophy teachers I had then just seemed to be much cleverer. And I found it difficult to keep up with the reading because I, re I read slowly and philosophy required less reading but reading more closely. So there was Jay Bernstein, a, man, a woman called Honora O'Neill, mm -hmm. who's a, who was a, a teacher of mine. I'm very grateful to her. Uh, a man called Robert Bernasconi, who uh, ended up as my PhD advisor. Then I was in France for a year. I did a maîtrise de philosophie in France. I thought that would be a good thing to do. There's a man called Dominique Janico that I talk about at the end of the Book of Dead Philosophers, yes. who was very important for me. And in France, I learned to do, to use a library and do proper research. Um, and that, that was very important. And then back at Essex, a man called Ernesto Laclau, mm. who had a kind of interesting reception in Denmark in the um, 80s and 90s. Laclau was really <laughs> important for me. So that was, kind of the, that was the basic constellation, and then other people kind of come in and out. But uh, those are the key kind of teachers. Let's talk about a, a bit about this uh, book. Yeah. The Book of the Dead Philosophers, yep. here in its English version, and this yep. is the Danish uh, translation. It's actually one of my favorite books. Thank uh, you for... It's uh, deep and witty, it's easy to read, and um, yeah, you can read it from cover to cover, or you can just pick a number of philosophers and read about how they died. On the toilet. Yeah. Ideal toilet reading. It is. It's, um, it's about the length of time to read an entry. It depends on your bowel movements, obviously, but, <laughs> but there are some very short entries if you have diarrhea, um, some longer ones if you are constipated. I mean, when, when I tell people about this book, they react in strange ways. I mean, they yeah. don't believe that it's possible to write a history about how philosophers have died. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is possible because it's right here. You've, I mean, it's 10 years ago since it was published yeah. in English, so you've talked a lot about it. Uh, I know that, but can you remember why you chose to write a book about how philosophers died? Yeah. Um, about 200 philosophers. Yeah, 200 philosophers. It's, um, oh, I want to thank Camilla, firstly, for, from Klim Publishers for all of her work on my behalf, and you too, it's incredibly helpful. I'm very, I'm very pleased, it's, I mean, you know, there are, few, there are a few things that give you a real buzz as a writer, but seeing your work in a, a, a foreign language is very important. And Danish is important to me, um, and Denmark is important for me, because I wrote a book on Hamlet, and I've got this very strange theory about Denmark, which I could go into later on if you like. <laughs> it's basically, I mean, you know, in terms of the... Like a note. No, but the, the, I mean, in terms of the, the, history, of it, the history of Britain, um, the post-Roman history of Britain, the Romans leave in around 350 AD, and then there's this gap that's called the Dark Ages, and then the, there's the Christianization from the north, and then 800 or so, 
the, the gap begins to be, begin to be, to be filled in. What happens in that period? Uh, well, on my theory, which is backed up by some archaeology and different pieces, the Danes arrive. Mm -hmm. And there's always been this strange uh, relationship between England and Denmark, right? And uh, most people that are English have got no awareness of the fact that English was, England was a Danish colony, right? There was Dane law. There were English kings that spoke only Danish. And, uh, and Denmark wasn't this kind of nice country full of, you know, beautifully designed chairs and handsome people <laughs> drinking lattes. They were motherfuckers, the Danes. And they were, and they were going to come. If the Danes turned up where you lived, you were in trouble. Yeah. Right? And they, they that wanted to... That was before to, yeah, Kierkegaard. Yeah. They wanted to yeah. go somewhere and, and take over. Yeah. And that image of the Danes, I think, is very good. Uh, I like that <laughs> and I have it, ambivalent feelings about no, it, you know, we, we well, have yeah. our Viking uh, brand, but you know, they were motherfuckers, they were rapists and uh, murderers, and, and we celebrate them. That's a bit strange. No, it's great. And the sense of, you know, uh, like in Hamlet, you know, which is You know, the, the most important text written in the English language set in Denmark in the castle of Elsinore, which was the castle where King James I and Queen Anna, who was Danish, were, had their honeymoon, and then the first performances of Hamlet were probably in the, you know, before James I and, and the Queen, um, and James I was uh, a newly chosen king whose father had been murdered by his mother's lover, and it was a play about a young Danish prince whose father had been murdered by his mother's lover, and that mirroring between England and Denmark, and the way in which what the, the internal divisions of, of Englishness gets played out in relationship to Denmark in Hamlet, I think are very significant in terms of the relationship between our two countries. And it's, uh, it's, it's, I think it's, a, it's often underestimated. Anyway, changing the topic rather dramatically, the Book of Death Philosophy was written because um, I was working with um, a man called George Miller at Granta. And uh, Granta, I was doing that for years, and then he wanted me to write a book, and we basically concocted this as an idea. And uh, I then began to, then I was living in Los Angeles for a year, The Getty Research Institute, which, you know, where I lost the will to live, amongst other things, and it was really depressing in the way in which Los Angeles can just suck the life out of things. And so I began to, but they got a great library. <laughs> so I used the library and I just began to look and see whether I could do this, and then began to construct the idea of these small entries, philosopher by philosopher by philosopher, basically follows an apparently chronological order. And it's a book, what I like about this book after all these years, the things I hate about it, but what I like about it after all these years is there's a, there's, it's, um, it's an illusion, right? It mm. looks like a, um, a simple comic little series of anecdotes about philosophers, which it is. The, 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 the deeper purpose is to, to try and construct an alternative 
view of the history of philosophy and the nature of philosophy. So we had this, I mean, what it, so what I did for this book was to read every history of philosophy um, from Aristotle's uh, book Alpha of the Metaphysics through to Walter Burley, Thomas Stanley, uh, Brucker, and then the great German historians of philosophy, Tiedemann and, and, and uh, Tenemann in the late 18th century. And what you notice about this is that philosophy in antiquity was organized by schools, by persons. It was linked to biography. Mm -hmm. right? So the, the, the life of a philosopher was, was, was linked conceptually to what they thought. And the anecdotes were a way of you know, managing that, making that human and accessible. And then um, it's, uh, that drops, all, and also that philosophy wasn't Greek, uniquely Greek. The Greeks were important, but in these ancient histories of philosophy, you've got lots of stuff about the Chaldeans, the Persians. Mm. Um, in Brooker's 18th century history of philosophy, there's stuff on the Ethiopians, the, the philosophy of the Celts. So you get this very different geography of philosophy. And that interests me a lot, thinking about the history of philosophy and history geographically rather than in terms of some progressive narrative. Now, what happens in the, um, in the late 18th century, but we know it really through the work of Hegel, is that we get this linear progressivist idea of history. That his, the, his, philosophy is something which begins with the Greeks, therefore begins in Europe, and then goes through this series of stages and ends up with modern Germany, France, Britain, and then uh, the United States. And that linear progressivist idea of a history, uh, as it were, the spirit of philosophy, I think is what I'm trying to destroy in this book, right? Mm. I'm trying to kind of undermine that. So, so although it's a kind of funny, superficial, um, odd book full of anecdotes that you can read on the toilet, what I'm trying to do is the kind of darker purpose is to, is to get people to reimagine the, the history and the nature of philosophical activity. Nothing I do here is that there's an awful lot of, uh, of women in this book. Um, not because I'm such a wonderful person, but because it's an attempt to, <clears throat> if you look at the history of philosophy uh, as a series of big books, you inevitably end up as a, with a, those big books largely being written by, by men. If you begin the history of philosophy by looking at, say, epistolary exchanges, letter exchanges, different, more occasional texts, then you end up with a series of correspondences, say, between mm -hmm. Descartes and Princess uh, Elizabeth of Bohemia, between uh, Damaris Cudworth and Locke, between Voltaire and the Madame de Chatelet. And that goes all... So that... Another thing I try and do in the book is to construct a series of correspondences, mirrorings back and forth, um, entry by entry. So, yeah, that's kind of... But what's at stake in it is a, a very simple idea, which is that we are terrified of death um, and that philosophy is the art of dying. Yes. Right? So philosophy... In Socrates, and I would argue uh, it's a tradition that's continued and it should be with us now, is the art of dying, the ars moriendi. And so to philosophize is to learn how to die, as Montaigne says, quoting Cicero, uh, but to learn how to die is to learn how to live. And the, um, there's this other 
quotation which I make a great deal of, which is that when Montaigne says, um, he who has learned how to die has unlearned how to be a slave. Mm-hmm. He or she who has unlearned to die has unlearned how to be a slave. Meaning that slavery consists in slavery to the fear of death. Right? Uh, and indeed, slavery to the fear of death through illusions of immortality, mm-hmm. through illusions of the continuation of life. And therefore, to learn how to die is to accept one's limitedness, right? One's, one's limitedness. But that limitedness is the condition of freedom, right? And this is, this is in many ways, maybe the, the big point of the book, yes. is that um, uh, whatever freedom means for us, whatever freedom of, of thought and action means to us, it, it is only freedom in relationship to limitation and constraint. And it's through that limitation and constraint that freedom becomes possible as a more modest, as a more modest idea of, of what human beings are capable of. So what I think we both hate in, um, say, forms of self-help discourse or in forms of ideological discourse that are carried on into universities is the idea of you know, human beings capable of endless growth, you know, rich potential. You know, getting better all the time in every way. This, this year, I remember a student saying this in a, in a report, this was a student that failed dramatically, began her report by saying, the last year has been a, a year of spectacular growth. And you think, just, no. <laughs> it wasn't. It was a year of spectacular disaster. And, and if you, so it seems to me that this is, this is also something that, I link to kind of interest in religion is the, um, the first step, it seems to me, is accepting limitation, which is why I say philosophy begins in, in disappointment. It, it's an accepting of, limit, of limitation that, as Pascal said, the human being is the weakest reed in nature, a mere virus can destroy us. We begin from that, that modest assumption and then see what's possible. Mm. And, um, and that means, you know, accepting. Uh, so it's the refusal limitedness, uh, which I think is pernicious, because it leads to the, the real virus of our times, which is optimism. <laughs> how, how general should we take a statement like that? What you just said, uh, philosophy begins in disappointment. We, yeah. we, we've learned from Plato that it begins in wonder. Begins in wonder. And then you tell us that it begins in disappointment. Yeah. Is that a... Uh, an idiosyncratic statement, or is it a statement about philosophy as such? Is it about philosophy for you, or about yeah, philosophy? It, it's, I mean, people like the idea of philosophy beginning in wonder, because people can go, oh, look, it's, yeah. it's wonderful. And you can go and watch a Terence Malick film, like, To the Wonder, and go, ooh, it's <laughs> wonderful. Um, it's not. I mean, you know, it depends how you see it, but I see things rather as a, you know, a stale promontory, as, 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 as Hamlet says in, in, um, in the play, that the world is not wonderful. I mean, and I begin from the idea that we begin from an experience of, of disappointment, of a sense of things having failed. And uh, that failure, but that failure is not the end of things, right? Um, so the way, I, the, way I, the way I construct things is by saying, 
that we begin with an acceptance of disappointment, that the, um, the glorious dream of the human being connecting with immortality, the soul, with God, all of that, that's gone. We live in a, in a, in a, in a, in a largely kind of desiccated, uh, largely dead world where there are, there are two things. There's, there's, there's religious disappointment, there's a sense that God is dead, that the ultimate source of meaning and value has gone, and political disappointment, that what we see in the world is an obvious, overwhelming experience of injustice. Right? So on the basis of that religious and political experiences of disappointment, that leads one to then raise questions. Right? What would be something like, what would meaningfulness or significance mean in a context where we took seriously the death of God on the one hand? Um, the experience of injustice that follows from political disappointment lead you to, can lead you to questions of uh, morality. You know, what, what should one do in a world which is busy destroying itself and things like that. So, so and that, see, if you begin, here's the way it goes. If you begin in wonder, you end up in the optimism of despair, mm-hmm. right? Uh, or the despair of optimism. If you begin in disappointment, you can end up in a, in a form of acknowledgement or affirmation. Mm-hmm. That, that's the kind of story I'm trying to tell. So there is no God and there is no justice, but there is um, philosophy to, to help us or as a response well, to those losses. Or... There's, there's, I mean, there's a, there's a process of, of, of thinking, right? There's a process of, so for me, philosophy isn't, has never been, th- I've never think, I never think of it as a, an autonomous, separate discipline. Philosophy, for me, has always been, um, has to be part of the life of culture, right? Part of the life of how a culture thinks and reflects upon itself. So insofar as a culture thinks and reflects on itself, it's being philosophical. So I've got a very kind of wide idea of philosophy and very little interest in separating philosophy off from other disciplines, particularly when it comes to things like the arts. So um, there's that. Uh, I, I think that the, it's a question of what I tried to do in some work I did about 10 years ago was to, um, on the basis of this idea of disappointment, to then to begin to construct um, something like uh, uh, an ethical subject, mm-hmm. a moral subject based on This is where your questions about Lergstrup and yeah, and, um, yeah, and that's where that, that came in. And on, on the other hand, I think that um, religion is, is a tricky one for me because I'm enormously attracted to uh, forms of religion, particularly um, Christianity, mm-hmm. particularly in its kind of higher Kierkegaardian articulations. I've just finished teaching a course on, on mysticism that was mainly on, um, on, on, on medieval Christian mysticism, and I'm fascinated with that material. But, and I'm envious of people that have that, that capacity to um, believe, that capacity to excoriate themselves in the, in the name of a life of, of, uh, of faith and, and ritual. That, you know, that's something which... And so, so secularism if indeed we're in a secular period, which is arguable, has never been t- to me a kind of source, something to con- congratulate ourselves about. Um, I mean, I think that to understand 
how human beings are in the world. You have to understand how to think religiously, how they bind themselves together, how they, how they collect in, into groups. So, um, so the closest I get is, is a kind of, in, in the faith of the faithless, I talk about religion in, in some detail. Yeah, we should talk about that yeah. uh, later, I, I hope. Um, but can I challenge you a bit? Because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm inclined to agree with everything you've said about uh, philosophy and the relationship to death, that philosophy begins. Mm -hmm. It is the art of dying, as you said, it begins in disappointment. But I, I, I thought, well, maybe it's sort of a privileged position to have for a professor like you and me, you know, to be able to say that. So, you know, we can publish books and fly around the world and do talks and talk about how meaningless life is because it's very comfortable. Um, it's not that difficult. It's not for me. It's not, I mean, it's not, I mean, it, it, it's a kind of, no, it, it, it's a, no, it, it's a, you know, a, 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 still a kind of constant agony of soul searching, you know, yeah. it's, and the sense of fraudulence and all the rest. And, and the, the, the privilege, yes, yeah, sure. But, uh, I mean, on the other hand, you know, it's, it's a question of how you, remember, you know, you could look at this from, I don't know, an Afro-pessimist standpoint, <laughs> right? You could, you could, I mean, I, I did some stuff years ago with um, when, uh, around the time Deaf Philosophers came out and Infinitely Demanding came out with, with Cornel West, who was saying I was much too optimistic, right? Because mm. disappointment is disappointment in relationship to something that wasn't disappointed. Mm -hmm. there, was, there was a time when things were okay, and you've now become disappointed. But there still was a time when things were okay. For someone like Cornell, thinking through African-American experiences, it's just catastrophe. Yeah. Catastrophe upon catastrophe upon catastrophe. And that's the standpoint. You, and, and that's not a question of privilege. No, no. That's a question of how you, how you understand historical processes, it seems to me. Mm -hmm. I mean, um, I mean it's, um, it's something which... I think that um, it's, um, how would I put it? Uh, I think it's communicable in a, in a way. How would I put that? I think that the question of, that question of privilege is a, is a, is a it's a question that people can, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't really, I don't really buy that in a way, you know, it's a, it's, I think that um, we didn't talk at the beginning about the relation of all this to, say, for me to say, class experience, right? That, that's very important. Mm -hmm. And the, the sense of, um, I guess all that one can do as you know, someone, someone that teaches and, and writes is that you can try and, um, you can try and convey you know, the urgency of, of certain issues and the urgency um, uh, of certain matters. And you can do that through, through pushing, people in, pushing people in the direction of books that will, will do something, that will transform them. And I guess the, the kind of naive part of me is, is um, the idea that human beings are basically 
disfigured, screwed up, messed up, dislocated, dissociated selves uh, who can then find forms of articulation mm. uh, and forms of confidence through, through reading and study. And that can enable you to get a sense of orientation in the world. And that's, uh, that's something which, yeah, sure, if you're in a privileged situation, is easier, but it's something which I think is, is gen more generally available than we imagine. Mm. Yeah, I just had the thought that if you look at the history of pessimism, for example, mm -hmm. um, you, you may correct me, and it's not something that I know a whole lot about, but it seems to me that the great pessimists in history have been sort of privileged people who mm -hmm. are, are able to articulate that thought. Uh, I don't know what it means. I mean, normally we say that um, we should be careful not to be blind to the privileges that we have when we say, for example, that, oh, life is good, you can do anything, uh, yeah. why don't you do it? Well, you're blind to your own privileges when you say something like that. But perhaps there is, interestingly, also another kind of blindness mm -hmm. uh, related to the pr privilege of being able to say, well, life is terrible, isn't it? Let's have a drink. Well, uh, yeah. I mean, it's, 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 it's a... I, for me, it's a kind of... Uh, it's... The next book uh, is a book on, on, on Greek tragedy, um, on the Greeks, and I'm trying to... I've been thinking about that for a long time. Um, there's, a, there's a sense in which... For me, and this is where I'm, you know, I'm indebted to someone like um, like Nietzsche. Obviously, the the view of the world that you get in in Greek tragedy uh, can look very pessimistic. Mm. Right? Call no man happy until he is dead. Um, the worst thing is to have been born. You know, the best thing not to be born. Second best, die soon. Right. On the other hand, there is a kind of realism there, the realism in the sense in, in which one's, one's psychological structures, one's psychological life, and one's political life are contaminated by catastrophe from, from the get-go. And um, what we can do in, in, a, in a play uh, is, is, is to point that out, to, to point that out, to show that to people in its rich, moral ambiguity, and then something happens as a consequence of that. The, the delusion of philosophy, this is where I'm anti-philosophical, is uh, the idea that, um, that the right intellectual relationship to concepts, uh, rendering concepts intelligible, uh, can lead to an understanding of that which truly is can give you an ontology of the way things are and then can lead to a series of moral assumptions. Mm -hmm. I think those, those views are highly questionable and dangerous. So I think the, it's not a question of taking, it's not a question of pessimism for pessimism's sake. It's not what I'm saying at all. Mm. It's a question of, of reminding people of the, the historical structures of which are, which are complex and often full of violence and, and grief and war in which we're all implicated are the basis from which we, we might begin. That doesn't mean it ends there. That means that's where we, we begin from. Mm. 
Our colleague, uh, if we can call him that, Alain de Botton, you know, he has the school of life. Right. You have the school of death. Yeah. Um, you organized it some years ago, a writing course where people were supposed to write uh, suicide notes. Suicide note crazy. You, you, you have this book, it's called yeah. Notes on Suicide. Mm -hmm. It has David Hume's uh, text on the subject matter, yeah. uh, but with your own um, uh, thoughts and commentary. So, <laughs> why this preoccupation with death? In a way, you've already answered it. Yeah. That's what philosophy is about. Right. But do you think that we live in a certain age when it's particularly important to remind ourselves <laughs> yeah. of the facticity of death, yeah. if you will. I mean, we're all, you're all going to die. I mean, you're all going to die. It's, no, it's hard take to, notes. Yeah. You might get another <laughs> 10 years if you go to the gym, but, you know, it, that's it. So, in a sense, the, the, um, to be reminded of, of mortality is, is incredibly important because we live in such catastrophically death-denying cultures, particularly where I live in the United States, mm -hmm. which is a culture which is kind of systematically denied death for, for generations, and it leads to terrible consequences. So that's, that's the first step. The, um, the, uh, the Alain de Botton thing, I mean, there's this thing called the School of Life in London, and I did this event there years ago, and it really pissed me off because there were these, you know, upper-middle-class... Oxford-educated English people talking about philosophy to me, and they said, well, I went, my, my tutor at Oxford didn't say that. And I got really angry. I had to be kind of, it, it got quite nasty. So then with my friend Sina de Jaffe, we had the idea, let's do a school of death. And then it, the opportunity came up at this little gallery space in New York in 2013. And so we had it for a month, and we just, a school of death, we had a, we put a blackboard up with a different phrase every day, you know, taken from the Book of Death Philosophers, that kind of thing. And then we did a suicide note creative writing workshop that was then picked up by, you know, different, anyway, journalists, and it, it created a, a little Ferrari. The interesting thing about that was that in the suicide note creative writing workshop, uh, it was very moving. People were, I asked people to write, suicide notes, um, and they did. And it was very, uh, it was very sober, and it was raining outside, it was very quiet, and suddenly it got very serious and interesting. And, uh, but the book is really about the prohibition against suicide, yeah. and the, the largely Christian origins of the prohibition against suicide, and, and why that's the case, and why we need to talk about suicide. And what I try and do in the book is to analyze suicide notes. Yeah, it's as, a literary genre. As a literary yeah. genre. And they're fascinating. And um, it's, you know, it, it's pornographic in the way in which you can't stop reading mm. uh, suicide notes when you start. Um, but they have this uh, ambivalence of of love and hate. So you'll find in, I mean, the one example I talk about in there is I mean, Kurt Cobain's suicide note, uh, which was read out by Courtney Love um, after he died, obviously. And it says, you know, I'm, you know, I'm just too moody, I'm just too bad, I'm moody baby, I hate myself, I hate myself. Um, you know, better the, you know, better to burn out than fade away, 
um, yours, Kurt, and then in, in, in capital letters at the bottom of the pages, I love you, I love you, I love you. And what you find in suicide notes is this extraordinary ambivalence of, of, of love and hate, mm. self-hatred that then finds expression in a desperate pleading for love. And so what I try and do in the, in the book is to, just to talk about that and then to talk about why it is that we find suicide so difficult to talk about and to at least address that. Mm -hmm. And then, um, you know, I come up with the borrowing from the work of Suron, the, the, as where the pessimist's refutation of suicide, which is, you know, your life isn't so important anyway, so why, why bother, you know? Uh, <laughs> hang around and look at the, the melancholy spectacle of the world for a little bit longer. Um, and to, so, and I think the, that, that's it, so that's, you know, that's an important topic for me, suicide. Yeah. Talking about um, death, and I don't know about suicide, it's but... cheerful, isn't it? Yeah. I've also written we, on humour. We will get to something else in a, in a while, but um, uh, football and David Bowie and, and stuff like that. But to, to connect this oh, grief, with... grief. And yeah. grief, yes. yes. Well, that's not very cheerful, but to connect this with uh, certain political realities, I have been interested in our new Minister of Research, uh, or Secretary of Research, or whatever it's called, in uh -huh. Denmark, right. who has studied with the Singularity University in, uh, in the US. Right. And that's an organization that aims to create eternal life mm -hmm. by merging humans, the human body and brain, with mm -hmm. digital technologies, genetic mm -hmm. engineering, uh, artificial intelligence. So they want us to live forever. Mm -hmm. That's the ultimate goal. And, and the singularity is the concept they use, f you know, f to, to, to designate this yeah. um, uh, endpoint yeah. where everything comes together. And, and to me, it sounds like New Age religion. Yep. But uh, now our minister uh, talk, of research talks about these things, even the prime minister in Denmark, other ministers talk about it related to concepts like disruption, the whole world is changing all the time, what we know now will be useless next year, right. we should be innovative and creative right. and get ready, <laughs> right. be alert. And the, I'm just, I don't know how, what to make of all this, this relationship between the quest or the longing for immortality mm -hmm. and uh, this whole political agenda about change and development and, and movement and the future. Uh, I remember look, uh, reading in one of your books, you, you say that the very idea of progress is reactionary or something like that. For me, yeah. Yeah, yeah it belongs um, on the Brazilian flag. Yeah. So, do you have any from analysis of what is happening? I'm not talking about the Danish situation, so you don't know about that, yeah. I guess. But I, it's a global trend, you know, rich people in being interested in, in, in living forever, merging with technologies, um, yeah. I mean, governing populations through big data. And are these very different phenomena that it's just my paranoid mind connecting them? Or, or, or what do you think? Yeah, they're, they're, they're related phenomena and they're part of an ideological configuration that needs to be criticised. Mm -hmm. And I see that as a philosophical task. I mean, the, 
the first, I used, I, I used to have, um, well, have belonged to an organization called the International Necronautical Society with my friend Tom McCarthy, and we used to issue declarations to nobody in particular, um, <laughs> just because we did it because it was something to do. But one was a declaration against the future, and that seems to me right. That the, if you're interested in, in thinking, there should be a kind of prohibition on the future because there's always this, this ideological use of the future, which is never the infinite future, it's usually the short to middle term future, mm -hmm. which is used as, a, as an excuse for amnesia, right? So behind that, behind that desire for immortality and that emphasis upon constant change, creativity, is, is a disastrous amnesia. Which, so what I see as the, the task of the, the scholar, let's say, the task of the scholar, is largely historical. To, to stick, uh, to stick a, a spoke in the, the alleged ideological wheel of history, to stop it, to, to, to produce a kind of emergency brake system, as Benjamin says, to try and stop this thing, and then to get people to reverse their perspective back historically. Because the only thing um, that's going to make any sense, say, of a situation like the Danish situation, it seems to me, is, is through a deep historical understanding of it, mm -hmm. right? Of its different strata, its layers of influence, its formation over time, its relationship to other cultures, the way that's emerged. And that's, that's, a, that's a, an empirical issue which can be resolved through actual work. Mm -hmm. And I think that's, that, that's a very important uh, thing to remember. And we end up in this, um, this kind of soft-brained uh, singularity mm. fantasy, which is, you know, again, if you look at it historically, you see that human beings have fantasized for millennia about merging with technology. Mm. Right? And one of the basic myths of what it means to be human that we have, the Prometheus myth, is about that. It's about the relationship of the human being to technology. But at least since the 17th century, and arguably much further back, there's been this fantasy of mechanization, uh, technology as a way of completing and ameliorating the human situation, and allowing for the possibility of absolute knowledge and infinite life. The name of that delusion now goes under the, uh, often under the name of AI. Mm. Right? People just say, oh, it's AI. Yeah, right, okay. What's that mean? No idea. It's AI, it's an AI problem, yeah. The, the robots, yeah. Yeah, right, okay, yeah. And we'll merge with the machines in some kind of post-human landscape. No, we're, we're gonna, you know, we're, I mean, we, I mean, my view of human beings, I think we share this view, is that we're human beings, right? And it's nothing to be proud of, right? <laughs> yeah. as, as Beckett said, you know, a lobster couldn't do it. Uh, we think, but maybe lobsters can. And I'm very fond of sea creatures of all kinds that have become recently because of a fascination uh, together I share with my girlfriend, Ida, with uh, all things maritime, you know, particularly squid. So maybe, maybe squid have a, a secret knowledge of, of things that we can only begin to dimly become aware of. I don't know. But being human is we're limited creatures who, are, who, are, who, are, who will die, right? We'll die. And it seems to me that the, I mean, whether you want to live forever is 
That's one question, but do your kids want you to live forever? No, they want you to die. In a sense, it would be, you know, if you were dad and 200 years old and they were 170, that would be very strange. I mean, it's, it's, it's appropriate for human life to end. And it seems to me a fundamental question for any culture is how we deal with that, how we deal with people that choose to end their lives voluntarily uh, through forms of suicide. Suicide's the wrong word. Um, or you can, you, can, you can take the kind of pulse of a culture through looking at how it, how it commemorates death. Mm. You know? the centrality of death in any culture. And it seems to me that we're doing very badly mm. on, on that front, um, particularly, where I, particularly in the United States. It, so, the, you know, we don't know what to do, we don't have the appropriate rituals. I mean, you know, when I was growing up, there was still the memory that, you know, gentlemen should take off their hats when a hearse went down the road. Um, men don't wear hats so much, but the hipsters wear hats now. But people don't wear hats so much, so that doesn't... But still, you don't feel anything, you just do it. Right? Mm. When you see something, like, you know what to do. And it seems to me that if you look at any cultural formation from deep antiquity until fairly recently, the central activity of that society was bound up with its relationship to the dead. Mm-hmm. Right? and the relationship that the dead have to the living. Mm. And it's that relationship that the dead have to the living that allows for the continuation of that culture. Mm. And what's going on with this singularity stuff is a kind of amnesia mm. of that through an illusion of immortality, which actually does a huge disservice to the dead. Mm. Right? And it seems to me that the, if you look at, say, Neolithic cultures, you know, it remains up here or in the, wherever it might be, you see that the, the, the central, fundamental cultural act is uh, a relationship to the, the ancestors, mm. some kind or another. And that's something we could learn from, it seems yeah. to me. If you go through Denmark, look at the landscape, it's all, we have like 20 or 30,000 uh, graves from the iron, bronze, and, mm-hmm. and even stone age. Um, mm-hmm. You know, little hills, mounds, um, what do you call them in English? Oh, yeah, like like um, um, uh, like barrows. Barrows, probably barrows. yes. And now, of course, also medieval churches with mm-hmm. cemeteries everywhere, and so it's very visible mm-hmm. in a small country like Denmark that there are dead people everywhere mm-hmm. below our feet. Right. But we don't think about it. I That's guess. where you should send the politicians. Yeah. That's grave, a good idea. You send them to graveyards yeah, and you true. ask them to study. Just to spend a day writing down the names of the dead people yeah. in the cemetery. Yeah, not to, a do, good not, idea. To go, not to spend time with consultants and going to me, but just to do that. And that would be something. That would be the, the act of commemoration would be something. It would be a start. Yeah. I, I like what you said about us being human beings and that's nothing to be proud of. That yeah. seems to me to be a kind of modest humanism. Yeah. Uh, you can also be another kind of humanist who says that, well, we humans are the rulers of the earth. We are more important than anything else. It, mm. it is something to be proud of. So there are at least two kinds of humanism. And I, I don't know if you are uh, comfortable with the term humanism, but I've been thinking a lot lately about how to be a humanist yeah. today. 
uh, you're a scholar of Heidegger, for example. Yeah. Uh, and, and he had <laughs> a certain relationship to humanism in more ways than one. Um, we have, well, we just talked about transhumanism, you know, the quest for immortality, the dream of, of living forever, humans no longer being humans, but being something else. Um, we have uh, the whole post-structural philosophy of Foucault, you know, uh, the death of man, what's the famous last words in the order of things, you know, man will disappear like a face drawn on the in beach, sand on the edge of the sea or something mm -hmm. like that. So this whole 20th century um, anti-humanism, mm -hmm. if you will, can we still be humanists after that and what would it mean today? Yeah, yeah, we can. Um, I, I mean, I see that what, what people like Foucault were up to and, you know, um, is a critique of that, that grand idea of humanism based around the elevation of the figure of, of man. Um, in the same way as you can find a critique of that version of humanism in Sartre and other people, mm. or in Derrida's The Ends of Man and the different source texts there. But the, it seems to me that the, um, it's, um, it's, I mean, you know, the, I mean, one, th one thing that I learned from, um, from reading Derrida uh, a long time ago, uh, was to never use any, any post words, mm -hmm. right? like post-structuralism, post-humanism, post-anything, because that is already uh, to, to, under, to, to assume a certain historical understanding of pre and post, and there being some kind of clear uh, epochal or historical shift. I'm very dubious about that, of any, any such claims. Mm -hmm. And indeed, I would, I'm dubious indeed about claims for the distinction between antiquity and modernity when you look at it, mm. look at it closely. Human life, patterns of human belonging have remarkably similar features across time. On the one hand, there is uh, there is change, right? The, you know, the use of carbon in the Industrial Revolution leads to significant changes in the life of people in the, the north of England, where my family are from. Um, but there are still uh, kind of molecular structures which, which, are, which are difficult to, to shift. So, that the, so I think, uh, beginning with an idea of um, uh, that we're human, that's nothing to be proud of, and not even to go to the idea of humanism, just to say that we're called human beings and here we are. And if there is a, human, if there is a humanism, then, you know, I guess I would uh, defer to um, someone who was very important to me, who was Levinas mm. a long time ago, and I, I still read with great interest, where he talks about humanism of the other human being. Mm. So to begin, if you are going to use the idea of humanism, which I, I wouldn't, so a humanism wouldn't be a humanism of the elevation of the autonomous human being, but a humanism of the other, right. the other human being. And then why just the other human being? What, you know, why, why wouldn't that include non-human beings? Why wouldn't that be all sentient beings and so on and so forth? Mm -hmm. What about the squid? Yeah. <laughs> you know, whatever it might be, so that the um, so yeah, I, I think I think all posts and all isms are kind of 
unfortunate mm. in my view. Yeah. <laughs> That's the, uh, yeah, I don't know if that could be an ism, the non-ism. Non <laughs> Sorry. It's a a non-postism. I'm only on page two in my uh, notes here, so I'm beginning to worry a little bit. So now you mentioned Levinas, and maybe he can serve as a bridge to the topic of uh, mourning, grief. Okay. Uh, I would like to, to talk a bit about that. Also, of course, it's... That, right? mm -hmm, yes, right. um, we have a, a, a quite a large research project on, on the culture of grief, that's what we call mm -hmm. it. And something that inspired me when I read um, your work was uh, what you took from Levinas uh, in relation to, to grief and the death of the other. Yeah. Um, because it, perhaps in the uh, Book of Dead Philosophers and in the, the history of philosophy as such, Whenever death is thematized, yeah. it is often thematized as my own death. Yep. And uh, in Heidegger's philosophy, right. in the existential tradition more generally, it's, it's you know, what structures me as mm -hmm. a human being, as an acting subject, is the fact mm -hmm. that I'm going to die. And so it's the being towards death in, in Heidegger's terminology. And then enters uh, Levinas, and also Derrida, actually. But especially Levinas says that death actually enters my world uh, through the death of the other. Mm -hmm. And so if that is true, and death is still very important <laughs> to, to everything in human life, but it turns out that grief, or at least bereavement, and, and uh, the, the grief and sorrow you feel when the other dies mm -hmm. is more fundamental than my own anxieties about mm -hmm. dying. I, I, and I, I, I thought that, that was very... Uh, yeah. Important. <laughs> yeah, I, that, that's yeah, that's uh, I, I I agree wholeheartedly with that. I mean, the what's the problem with the Book of Dead Philosophers approach is that you know I'm defending the idea that to philosophize is to learn how to die. Philosophy mm. is an art of dying, but it's an idea of that one dies, one's death, right? So if you read Socrates's um, Phaedo. The, the last of the four dialogues of Plato that deal with the trial and execution of Socrates, he is able to die in his own way, right? Um, there's a kind of self-sufficiency, mm -hmm. an autarky, as the Greeks called it, autarkia. And that's, um, and that's what has to be, and that has no place for mourning, mm. right? So, so, so mourning, whatever it is, is some kind of, um, disruption of a fairly massive kind in our sense of self-sufficiency through the death of someone that we love or have an attachment to. And then the question is, you know, what, what significance does that, that have, that mourning, and, and what do we do with it? And so for me, if you're... Um, the history of philosophy is very bad on the question of mourning, right? The history of religious thought is much better because religion, say Christianity, begins with an act of mourning for Christ. The, there are incredibly interesting you know, Christian texts like St. Augustine's Confessions, which are fundamentally bound up with the experience of mourning for his mother, Monica, other things like that. So that's where you go for that tradition. But, I mean, for me, I mean, I'm a, you know, a little bit of a Freudian still, so that the, um, I mean, for... For Freud, mourning, mourning is that kind of gap in the world that opens mm. up 
where the, the, the loved one is gone. And that produces that affective disruption that we call, we call grief. And then, uh, you know, in the process of what Freud calls normal mourning, we eventually get over that and get back on with life and then eventually perhaps even are able to transfer our love onto somebody else. But where, when that goes, when that doesn't happen, when that goes wrong, uh, we can become um, melancholic, mm. right? That, that, that loved object that's gone becomes, the shadow of that falls across the, the ego, falls across the self, and beca can become a, an extraordinary level of self-reflective self-hatred of the kind that we find in a figure like Hamlet. Mm -hmm. Hamlet is the sort of quintessential melancholic. So with grief, it's a question of trying to keep the, the wound of grief open as revealing something, you know, fundamental about what it means to be human, and at the same time not letting it collapse into sheer melancholy. Mm. In existentialism, you can still be, at least in some versions, authentic. You can be resolute. You can make a decision and live your life. But with your idea and the idea in, in, in Levinas about mourning and yeah. grief as an inevitable aspect of life, you, you can never be authentic and resolute yeah. because we are relational, we are effective, yeah. and these yeah. relations constantly break. And sometimes... And def, you know, you can never uh, heal them because the other one really dies. Yeah. Uh, so you're actually doomed to, of, uh, to, to be inauthentic and, and ruptured. Yeah. And, and this, so, so in your work, grief, in a way, becomes fundamental to mm -hmm. the whole idea of subjectivity mm -hmm. and inauthenticity. Yep. And this is something I like very much. I mean, when you write that... Selfhood is a kind of grief. I think it's a... Yeah. Yeah. And this is so much against everything that is being written and said today, you know, where we should do things, <laughs> we should be able. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and you write about the impotent subject, the yep. subject that can't. Mm -hmm. um, so, I mean, I've been reading the whole, you know, positive psychology, oeuvre, whatever they write about human beings, you know, us being um, authentic and realize ourselves and have uh, great experiences. And reading your words is just so antithetical to all that. I hope uh, so, yeah. I mean, so, it, I mean, it's, I mean, you know, authenticity is, uh, you know, is, is another version of this, this jargon that we're, yeah, to, yeah. that we're subject to. So what grief shows, um, I mean, for me, the fundamental question is not the question of my death, I'm going to die and, you know, whatever. Um, the fundamental question in relationship to death is the relationship to the other's death. Mm. And death comes into the world through uh, the other person, usually through people that we we're very close to our mother, our father, hopefully not our children or people that we love, but it, it happens. So that that idea of, um, that if you're being with that idea of the self, the self is something which is fundamentally, you know, relational, open, uh, wounded, uh, grieving and, and inauthentic. Mm. 
And if you begin from that idea of inauthenticity, then I think it can allow for a different moral disposition. Yeah. Right? You, be, you begin, uh, you don't begin uh, your moral thinking from an idea of yourself and the rights that are due to yourself or whatever. You begin from an idea of the self as something which is, uh, which is porous, which is open, and which is, um, which is uh, affected by the other at the deepest visceral level. Yeah. And I think that's what grief does. I mean, it depends. And does it end? I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm, you know, when we think about the death of our parents, I mean, it's the most obvious example, but the death of my parents, um, you know, does you, you recover from that? In a way, in a way you don't. The grief never stops. It, it's, a, it's a constant kind of, um, you know, hemorrhaging of, of the self, which is, which is an expression of, of love. I mean, that can, go, that can go wrong. That can become, you know, that can become a form of quite nasty depression. But I think the, the idea of... So what I'm saying... What I'm saying is there should be a lot more mourning and a lot longer mm. periods of mourning. And the idea that, you know, something bad can happen, we have a few days to grieve and then we have to get over it and get back to work and be tough and strong is a disaster, I think. We now have up to six months, according to the new psychiatric diagnosis, for complicated grief. Okay, so if you grieve for, for more than six months, uh, you... you, you you have a mental disorder. Right. Yeah. So, so I'm saying... That, that's what your philosophy is about, uh, in a way. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Um, I, I'm, <laughs> I'm very uh, sympathetical to all that. And I, I think, as I said, it's deeply inspiring. My only worry, I mean, this relation between selfhood and grief, and also that relation being sort of the uh, possibility of ethics, yeah. in a way. Uh, this impotency uh, or impotency yeah. being, um, uh, I mean, the condition of possibility for the ethical demand, if you will. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if, if we were not these inauthentic, grieving, impotent creatures, I mean, we, we couldn't really be ethical. But mm -hmm. my only worry is that that kind of philosophical anthropology or whatever we should call it, yeah could become an excuse for not acting ethically. Right. I mean, the impotent subject can say, well, I'm a subject that can't. Yeah. I don't act, I'm passive. Yeah. I know that there is an ethical demand to help the other. We mm -hmm. talked about Lewistrup before, and it's yeah. quite similar in Levinas. Mm -hmm. uh, but I'm not that kind of subject. Right. Well, that, I mean, that, you know, that would be a misunderstanding, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, um, I mean, it's the, I mean, what I'm, what I'm opposed to is the idea of the self based in an idea of ability, being able, a self that can. Uh, and so what I take, and this goes back to really my interest in, in Beckett. Mm -hmm. right? let's, let's take Beckett as an example. Look at Beckett's characters in the trilogy, um, Malloy, Malone, the unnameable, Mahud. Uh, these are all characters who can't, right? We begin Beckett's trilogy with him in his mother's bed. I live here now, 
I don't know how I got here in a vehicle of some, some kind. I was certainly brought, someone comes in every day and brings me soup. So we begin with that position of, of Malloy supine in his mother's bed, his dead mother's bed, in that bed of grief, speaking. Now, is that, and it gets more extreme in Malone dies, and, and if we think about, we connect that to plays like Crap's Last Tape through to plays like Footfalls, Rockabies, the later work of Beckett. Is that acknowledgement of the subject as somehow impotent, unable, um, consistent with inaction? No, I think it's consistent with an idea of courage, mm. right? And you can look at that in relationship to um, me, to, to, to be biographical for a moment, in relationship to Beckett himself, who had that view of human beings, but was deeply courageous himself, received the Croix de Guerre from General de Gaulle for his actions during the resistance of which he never spoke. The delusion is the other way around, right? It's, I mean, someone like Levinas, um, Levinas, on my view, his idea of the inauthenticity of, uh, of the self is a way of keeping that moral, its moral disposition open in relationship to a past that it cannot redeem and which it has to somehow account for. But that is not a condition for inaction, it's a condition for action. So, mm. in Infinitely Demanding, the book where I work this out most consistently and in Faith of the Faithless too, the, the ethical subject that I postulate, I construct, is then, um, it leads into a whole theory of politics and political action. Um, and I think the two things are, are linked together. So I see no mm. contradiction between those things. It's a question of how we can, how, and this is where I'd, I'd agree with someone like um, Judith Butler, say, mm -hmm. you know, the, 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 the self, the mourning self, the vulnerable self, the poorest, dependent, relational self is the self that acts, mm -hmm. right? It's not the other way around. Yeah. That's the way I... We have just uh, seven minutes left, and okay. we, we still have to talk about um, faith, hope, love, football, and David Bowie. Uh, what would you prefer to talk about? Perhaps uh, a little bit about football, because this yeah. book was published today oh, in Danish. Yeah, yeah, it was. Yeah, it's great. It's, isn't it nice? Yeah. yeah. What we think about when we think about football. Yeah. Um, is it a book about the philosophy of football, or no. is it a book about a football? as seen by a philosopher. I yeah. don't know if that makes sense. The latter. <laughs> it's about football, really, yes. Yeah, it's about football and why it makes uh, the world a better place. No, the, I want to go back to something else, just, okay. just, just for sure. a second, which connects with Bowie, mm -hmm. is that I think what you find in someone like Bowie is exactly that sense of the self, right? Mm. Uh, it, it's all over his lyrics. It's all over the great stuff from low heroes, uh, lodger, scary monsters, but it's back there in The Man Who Sold the World. It's that sense of the self as porous, fractured, dissociated. And that's the condition, that inauthenticity mm -hmm. is the condition for Bowie's music. That's what he, he uses that mm. and makes work. And that work somehow stops him going mad, mm -hmm. right? 
That's the thing about Bowie, is that what we have is a body of work, and why Bowie is the most important artist of the last 50 years for me, in any medium, um, I mean, to hell with contemporary art, I hate it. <laughs> Bowie, it's just, you know, Bowie, you feel, you feel this, this visceral connection. With, Bowie's using all of that sophistication. It's, it's completely fake, completely inauthentic, and yet it's true, and it speaks to you on an absolutely individual basis. Right? So you feel that David, we don't know who he was, I never met him, but David is speaking to you. He's addressing you as this, you know, I think mournful kind of self. But that's the condition for his music, what he makes. And I think that's, that's really important to remember. So inauthenticity is not doing nothing. Mm. It's, it's how people actually do stuff, yeah. in, 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 my, in my view. And the opposite is also true. Authenticity leads to crippling inhibition and disaster. So, <laughs> but football is um, what I try to do in my work is talk about things that I like. And uh, there are different things I like, but two of the things I like best are the music of David Bowie and football. And this is a book about football. <laughs> and the, it's a kind of holiday book in the sense in which it, it's a... I mean, the thing about football is that it's a, it's a disgusting, money-driven corrupt, uh, institutionally corrupt FIFA, dirty money come from all over the world, pouring into football teams. The whole thing is ugly. Uh, and I can see why people are disgusted by football. I think that's fine. But still there's delight, beauty, grace, and the sheer pleasure of coordinated bodily movement. There's that beauty of the game. But what's of particular interest to me is the, the relationship to the fans, mm. right? And, um, and we think of being a football fan as being something stupid, um, and it's not. Um, fans are the repository of a, a history, um, a memory. They're a kind of living archive of a place, like Bronby or whatever it might be. And... Um, and they're a living testament to that. The players come and go, the coaches come and go, but the fans are this extraordinary kind of religious assembly, mm. I think. That's the way I, I think about it, that, you know, the closest to religion, religious experience for me would be, would be football. And, it, it, and it, what it gives you is a, a deep sense of a kind of polytheism, mm -hmm. right? That, you know, to belong to a to, to follow a club, whoever it might be, as long as it's not Real Madrid or Manchester United, um, <laughs> or Chelsea. <laughs> Obviously Chelsea. Yeah, everybody hates Chelsea. <laughs> is, uh, is, is, to, is to belong to that, that sense of uh, who you are and, and where you're from and what you stand for. And that's linked to uh, um, your myths, your gods, your history, um, and there are other gods, there are other teams with other gods and other histories, and um, they are different, and they're the enemy, but they have to be respected too. Yeah. So what I see in football is a kind of complex, 
polytheistic structure where I can, ha- I can have, a, as I do, a fanatical devotion to Liverpool Football Club. Fanatical devotion. I want them to destroy Real Madrid on Saturday night. <laughs> but I still respect the gods of Real Madrid. Yeah. Right? Kind of. <laughs> but there's that, and, and, and there's that, there's, there's that, and also, what, and if you don't do this, it just sounds stupid, but if you, if you, um, you listen to the way people that like football talk about football, it's an extraordinarily intelligent area of discourse, yeah. which is, which is, which is the, I mean, you know, no, this is true. This, this is, this, this, this is true. I've sat through, for 30 years, I've sat through philosophy papers, right? Uh, someone comes to the university, they give a talk, blah, 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 and then there are questions explaining why that person is wrong, right? Yeah. I've never seen anybody convinced ever by anything that was ever said. No, right? not one. So, if philosophy is about the use of reason to persuasively change people's minds, it doesn't happen. But in discussions of football, <laughs> it does. Yeah. You can have a passionately held conviction to your, your team, your sense of who you are, and you can listen to someone else, and they can produce an argument, and you can listen to it, and you can shift your opinion. Mm. It happens all the time. There's something about, the, the, um, about play, about the sense in which this is, this is time off, this isn't really serious, but it is serious. There's something about the phenomenon of play. It allows us a certain elasticity with our, with our thinking, mm. which isn't there in our political thinking and isn't there in our philosophical thinking, yeah. sadly. So for me, it's, it's kind of exemplary and um, really interesting. And we have to end now. And... Uh we will end with a song. Ooh. But let me first uh, thank you, Simon, for, for this conversation. Um, I really enjoyed it. And um, we've covered many themes, and it's very nice that we ended with uh, football, because yes. you are an active musician. And uh, I well, guess I can reveal that the song that we're going to hear and the music video that goes with it um, is... Yeah, okay, so... You should uh, introduce I, it. I, I'm English, <laughs> right? And so the... This, this is, I, I, I work with my friend John, who lives in Australia, and we do music that no one listens to. No one. <laughs> we had, I think, I think regularly 13 monthly listeners on Spotify. 12, <laughs> 13. We had to pay someone $500 to get the video you're going to see to the level of uh, 10,000 hits, at which point <laughs> it got put on to restricted content because we, because we use a bad word. <laughs> so this is music that you will almost, it's guaranteed you will never see again or listen <laughs> to again. But it's a song about uh, the England World Cup experience and uh, I hope you enjoy it. So let's, let's run it. Time ago, 
even there 82 we were out in the second round 86 hand of God Maradona 90 lost to Germany again 94 failed to qualify 98 lost on penalties to Argentina England England are a shit team World Cups are embarrassing One long bloody bad dream Waiting for elimination England, England are a shit team A bunch of bloody Lost to Brazil, Ronaldinho. 2006, lost to Portugal, penalties. 2010, stuffed by Germany. Again, again. 2014, we're out in the group stages. 2018, what? 2018, what? If you're not high on crack, you will see what I mean. I suppose you might think that I'm poking fun But after 50 years of this luck I'm really done But the thing about football is it's not the defeat that kills you It's the ever-renewed hope The hope that every new World Cup brings The hope that comes in to tickle your feet And then you realise your souls are on fire Let's face it, we know we're doomed but we'll still be singing England, England are a shit team World Cups are embarrassing One long bloody bad dream Perpetual humiliation England, England are a shit team A bunch of Du har lyttet til en podcast fra det Kongelige Bibliotek. Husk, at du kan abonnere på podcasten i din foretrukne podcast-app. Hvis du kunne lide, hvad du hørte, så del det gerne med andre, der også kunne være interesserede. Hvis du har kommentarer til podcasten, så find Den Sorte Diamant på Facebook, hvor du også kan holde dig orienteret om kommende arrangementer i Diamanten. Podcasten er produceret af Kulturafdelingen på det Kongelige Bibliotek, og musikken er af Søren Jacobsen.